Hello there, and welcome along to Planet Sport Football Africa, a passion for sport production where we look at African football, what's happening around the continent, and what African players are doing overseas. I'm Steve Vickers in Harare, Zimbabwe, joined by Ida Waringa in Nairobi, Kenya, and by Stuart Weir in the UK. Out of this week's show, we analyse the achievement of South African Pizzo Mosimani in winning the CAF Champions League with Egyptian side Al-Akhli. Early this year, Mosimani said that coaches from Europe should be checked before getting jobs with clubs in South Africa. You know, I, I just believe some of the coaches that come to South Africa really, 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 I don't know, I think they must scream. Well, CAF has tightened the rules for foreign coaches in continental competitions, so is this the time for black African coaches to shine on the continent? Also, we hear about the groundbreaking exploits of Peter Ndlovu, the first African to play in the English Premier League, and we pay tribute to Senegal legend Papa Buba Job, and Stuart looks at why Sheffield United are doing so badly in the Premier League. But first, the second legs of the preliminary round of the new CAF Champions League season are on this weekend. To pick out just a couple of intriguing ties briefly, Simba of Tanzania host Plateau United of Nigeria, Simba having won the first leg 1-0, and Mauritania's FC Nuadibu are at home to Asante Kotoko of Ghana, the first leg having ended 1-1. But let's go back to last weekend's 2019-2020 CAF Champions League final, a contest between two Egyptian sides with Al-Athli beating Zamalek 2-1 to take a record-extending ninth title. And South African Pizzo Mosimani became only the third coach to win the Champions League with two different teams, having taken the title in 2016 with Sundowns. It was a significant appointment two months ago for Mosimane as a black African coach at a North African club. Now, we were already at the semi-final stage by then, but uh, Mosimane delivered. He'd replaced the Swiss coach René Weiler. So much credit would you give Pizzo for this triumph, Ida? I like what Pizzo posted after the game, Steve. He said that he had to go to the Nile River to catch the big fish. <laughs> and a short sure thing, you know, Rene Wela, well, he did get the team to the semifinals, but uh, Pizzo's near flawless record since taking over the helm definitely can't be denied either. I mean, eight victories, one draw in his first nine games. And um, I think that while that latest CAF Champions League title means the world to the club and especially coming after seven years, it definitely means more, if you ask me, that they beat perennial rival Zamalek, you know, in uh, what was the derby of the century, as many called it, to get that title. And uh, let's not forget that very convincing 5-1 thrashing of Widad in the semis. So all in all, Pizzo has done remarkably well. Um, about Wayla, well, sources at the club have said for months now that he had lost the dressing room. He had lost the confidence of the board as well in his final days at Al-Ali. And, you know, that Pizzo's arrival heralded some form of cohesion. And especially during the pandemic when everything was so unpredictable. And look, Pizzo himself has paid homage and given Wayla due credit. And especially after the domestic league win that, you know, let's be honest, the Swiss coach had pretty much secured before his exit. 
But it's not over yet, Steve. Mosimene, of course, is on the verge of completing that historic treble. And Al-Ali is still in the Egypt Cup. Now, they will be facing Etihad of Alexandria. They will be in the semifinals. And I know that Pizzo's name at this point can pretty much be used as a synonym for unprecedented. But what an amazing feat that would be, Steve, and especially as a black coach. I mean, the last man to achieve that was Portuguese coach Manuel Jose. Now, that was in the 2005-2006 season that a lot of Al-Ali fans say has been the most successful season in the club's 113-year history. So, Steve, we're talking Pizzo possibly doing something that hasn't been done in around, what, 15 years? Huge. Yes, it would. And Amosimani's done a lot to raise the profile of black African coaches. And earlier this year, he took a swipe at the appointments that we often see in Africa of white European coaches with somewhat questionable credentials, getting jobs at clubs and with national teams in Africa. You know, I, I just believe some of the coaches that come to South Africa really, 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 I don't know. I think they must scream the same way as... Uh, as English football session screens on players. Probably we should screen. Because you can't come here and you haven't won nothing. What are the chances of winning here when you haven't won nothing before? You know? And, and let's be honest. If I am an unemployed somewhere in Europe, I come here. So maybe, maybe, maybe when you take somebody from a club in Europe, we're bringing him here, it's something else. Eh? But most of the guys who come here don't have a job. That audio from veteran South African journalist Velili Miandu. So Pizzo Massimani saying that coaches from Europe should be screened before getting jobs with clubs in South Africa to see how good they are. And I was interested to see that CAF have tightened the rules for foreign coaches in continental competitions. So here in Zimbabwe, FC Platinum had to part ways with their Dutch coach Peter de Jong three weeks ago as their request for clearance for the coach was denied. The requirement for coaches is a CAF A license and de Jong has a UEFA A, which CAF is not accepting now. They require a European coach to have a UEFA Pro license or to take the CAF A course. And I just wonder if things are changing a bit in promoting African coaches, Ida. It looks like it's slowly happening. And you know what, Steve? It's about time. Something similar happened in Kenya uh, quite recently, actually, when the Brazilian coach of Gorma here, which is the club that's representing the country in the CAF Champions League, well, he couldn't travel with the team for their preliminary round in Rwanda due to CAF restrictions surrounding him not having valid qualifications. So... In an interesting twist, well, the club was managed by a rival Kenyan Premier League coach for the CAF Top Flight match. Steve, can you imagine? (laughs) It's the equivalent of, you know, say, Platinum FC, you know, being managed by the Dynamo's coach on their CAF Champions League. So I guess only in Africa, you know. But Pizzo is right, absolutely right. The situation doesn't just play itself out in South Africa, by the way, but all over the continent. And with everything that's happened in 2020, well, one might have forgotten that it was just a couple of months ago that Belgian coach Luke Eimel made a shame of his time at Yanga. African clubs, Steve, are often used as get-rich-quick schemes by some of these foreign coaches. Just this week, 
The Czech coach at Kenyan top flight club AFC Leopards quit after just one match in charge. So I think a lot of this is just going the way of really illustrating what we're talking about. On the flip side, Steve, African coaches really cementing their place in the elite after so many obstacles and so many years, you know. Of course, there's the likes of Pizzo, who is really changing the stereotype in North Africa. And, uh, you know, quite recently before him, Nigerian Ndubuisi Egbo, he made history by becoming the first African coach to take a team all the way to the UEFA Champions League. So, Steve, hopefully more of this to come in 2020. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Ida. Asking for your thoughts on this on social media this week. Is this the time for black African coaches to shine? As South Africa's Pizzo Mosimani won the Champions League with Egyptian side Al-Athli, his achievement has done something to raise the profile of black African coaches. And as we heard uh, early this year, Mosimani said that coaches from Europe should be screened before getting jobs with clubs in South Africa. And CAF has tightened the rules for foreign coaches in continental competitions. So is this the time for black African coaches to shine on the continent? Can they match the exploits of European coaches in Africa? And what support do they need? You can go to our Facebook page and post a comment there. That's Planet Sport Football Africa. Or send us a WhatsApp to plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. That's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. Now, next here on Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport, we've been speaking to Ed Ahrens, a journalist with The Guardian newspaper in the UK and author of a book published this year called Made in Africa, The History of African Players in English Football. Now, Ed has some fascinating stories and insights. We'll be featuring our interview over the next few weeks. And today we'll hear about the first African player in the English Premier League. That's Zimbabwe's Peter Ndlovu. And first, Adrian Barnard asked Ed Ahrens why he decided to write this book. Well, I thought it was a book that needed to be written, actually. And, you know, you, you said thousands of books have been written about football, but not that many have been written about African football, or certainly in in English, and uh, certainly none have been written about the effect that African players have had on English football itself. And, you know, I've grown up in, in an era that, that began with sort of Peter Love just before the Premier League. And since then, you know, African players have played such an integral part in in the development of the Premier League. And you just have to look at the last season and the, well, the season I wrote about in the book anyway, which ended with three African players sharing the golden boot, Sadio Mane, Mohamed Salah and Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, just to show you how, how much of an influence African players have. And I think it was a, you know, a lot of the stories people would have heard, but a lot of them, um, people won't have heard before. And I think it was important to try and highlight some of the experiences that, um, some of the early pioneers in particular had to go through. Well, you mentioned there Peter and Love. He joined Coventry City in 1991, the second Zimbabwean to play in England's top flight after the Liverpool goalkeeper Bruce Grobola. He acquired almost instant hero status when he joined Coventry, scoring in their memorable 2-1 win at the then reigning champions Arsenal, which was, I think, Arsenal's first home defeat in about 18 months. So he was quite a trailblazer. Tell us something about him and some of the issues that he had to face when he started his career. Well, yeah, he had a really meteoric rise, if you like. These days, you know, African players, there's a pathway for them generally. 
Mohammed Salah, for example, wasn't signed directly from Egypt and Sadio Mane didn't come directly from Senegal. So there's a pathway now. But but back then, you know, it was a, the old school way of, of signing players, which the few African players that came before Peter and Love, it was, this was exactly how they arrived in England. And it was during a pre-season tour that the uh, commentary manager saw Peter and Love and his brother, Adam, who was also a very, very good player. And they both came over for a trial. And uh, they thought about signing both, but I think it was obviously just Peter in the end made it. And uh, he was an absolute sensation. He was a, a teenager at the time and broke into the first team. And, and as you said, he you know, he scored the winning goal against Arsenal. And then a, a few years later, he also scored a hat-trick at Anfield against Liverpool. I think it was the first visiting player for about 30 years to do that. And the way that he played was, was absolutely electric. You know, he just played off the wing, I think, in a... Modern system, he'd probably be in a 4-3-3, scoring lots of goals. A, a bit like a sort of Mohamed Salah figure. Just had electric pace and great skill. And uh, yeah, he, he really was a very important player, I think, for the African players that came after him. The former Coventry manager Bobby Gould said Peter and Love was quiet as a mouse, but then he went on to compare him with someone like Aidan Hazard today. Now, that's quite an accolade. Absolutely, yeah. And, uh, yeah, Bobby Gould was a really good person to talk to for the bit, I thought, because he, he remembered, uh, Steve McConey as well, who was many years before, uh, one of the, the, the very first African players to come to, to England. He was at Coventry as well. And Bobby Gould kind of remembered being a kid and seeing, uh, seeing Steve McConey playing for, for Coventry. And then many years later, obviously managed another really important African pioneer in, in Peter and Love. And yeah, I think one of my favorite stories from the book is that, you know, Peter was, represented uh, as an agent for his whole career by his uh, agent that he met by chance when his agent tried to come to the, the training ground to meet him as part of a bet. And uh, But yeah, that's a lovely anecdote that is told by Winston, his agent, in, in the book. And uh, and it really reflects well on Peter, the, the, the way that you know he took him in as his friend um, and business partner, ultimately. How important do you think it is for the uh, the black African players in the Premier League today to have people like Peter and Love who went before them blaze that trail, if you like? But he was playing at a time when there weren't many black players in the top flight and he had issues to face then, which perhaps players from Africa don't have to face today. Yeah, well, I think that there was yeah there were quite a few stories from that era, obviously. I don't think it compared to a lot of the uh, the experiences of, you know, people like McHoney, who I mentioned before, and Albert Johansson at Leeds in the 60s, and Jerry Francis as well, who was there just before him. But, yeah, certainly uh, with Peter and Love and Daniel Amicacci, who was at Everton, they both recall sort of quite racist experiences on the pitch and off the pitch, which, you know, you'd hope that is not the case these days, but I think we have seen in, in recent years and months that, that racism hasn't gone away. It's just kind of mutated into a different place and mainly online now. But, um, yeah, certainly in the early years for some of the black African players in the Premier League, it, it was very difficult for them. Well, fascinating stuff. That's Ed Ahrens, a journalist with The Guardian newspaper in the UK, author of a book published this year called Made in Africa, The History of African Players in English Football, and more from Ed next week. Well, this is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. Still to come, Stuart on Sunday's game between Tottenham and Arsenal. You can follow us on Twitter at Planet Sport FA. You can download our app and listen to the show anytime and access past programs in our archive. To download, go to the Play Store or the Apple iTunes App Store and enter Planet Sport Football Africa. 
Let's go to social media now. And last week we asked,、uh, how would you rate Ahmed's three years as CAF president, with the Confederation of African Football President Ahmed having been banned for five years by FIFA for breaching various codes of ethics? We asked, how do you rate his time in office? There were hopes of a new dawn for African football when Ahmed deposed Issa Hayatu in 2017, after Hayatu had been in charge for 29 years. Well, under Ahmed, we saw the Africa Cup of Nations expanded with 24 teams playing at the finals, but the financial position of CAF has deteriorated. So we asked, how would you rate Ahmed's three years in charge, and has football improved in your country? Here with your comments is Planet Sport Football Africa's Ash Tikiwa. Thanks, Steve. And we start today with Ahaj Ibu in the Gambia, who says, "Ahmed did both a good job and a bad job." I was expecting him to improve the standard of our CAF Champions League and CAF Confederation Cup, so that they will be known around the world. Also, I was expecting him to make the Afcon in the summer, not in the winter," says Ahaj. Well, yes, the 2019 Afcon in Egypt was held in the summer, in June and July, but the next edition in Cameroon in 2022 has been scheduled for January and February, back to winter as before. To Uganda now. And Ecclesiastes says, "I applaud Akmad for developing women's football, but the Champions League and Confederation Cup is still lacking in development and profile." Arinaitwe Emi is also in Uganda. Apart from expanding teams at the Afcon finals to 24, I think not much has been achieved," says Arinaitwe. Here in Uganda, we saw the president of the Federation of Uganda Football Associations facing charges of embezzlement. While we see players almost boycotting Afcon qualifying games because of late payment and many other issues, on the positive side, I've seen some referees attain a FIFA badge here. So I think that is one of Akmal's achievements. But all in all, he has had a less impact on African football than we hoped. Bakari Tamba is in the Gambia. In my opinion, says Bakari, Akmal did not deliver what African football was expecting from him. More was required at this high level of football. PK in South Sudan says, "According to me, it's not been a good term in office because of breaching the codes of ethics." And Musa in the Gambia simply says, "He was a very poor governor indeed." But Richard Deko Ababio in Ghana is more positive. Akmal's three years were very good, says Richard, and he was doing a good work in African football. But Richard's view is very much in a minority this week. Here's Biswek Njakwa in Malawi. Akmal's three years in office can be rated as poor, says Biswek. Being in office for three years but banned for five could be translated that he has done little in the job but has committed a huge crime. The office bearers in African football are dying of ideas, and my country Malawi is not spared. Modu Pabi Baji in the Gambia paints a similar picture. Nothing has developed in my country in terms of football," says Modu. "No one is above the law, and African football deserved to be great." Mamadou Ba is also in the Gambia, and he sent us this voice note. Football in my country is developing. As far as right now, we are on top of our group with goal difference, and then we are really hopeful that we can make it to the Afcons for the first time. But I don't think our development of football is related to the last three years' calf policies. I think our football development is related to the amount of talent we are exporting to Europe, especially like in Italy. 
Mono John is in Zambia. Football in Zambia has not improved. But in terms of football sponsorship, yes, in the country, that has improved, says John. However, Akmal's tenure has been nothing but scandalous. He promised to revisit the TV rights deal, and yet many Africans were not able to watch the recent Champions League final. Financial irregularities have plagued CAF, yet the president didn't take any action to show his commitment to improving the financial position. And Bime Robertson in Cameroon got in touch about the situation in his country. The problem here, says Bime, is that development funds allocated gradually reduce until only a small part is left for execution. Bribery and corruption are here and there, so no impact has been seen. Projects start when the eyes of the world are with them, but soon after everyone has forgotten, everything stops and no work is done again. And marvelous Olarewaju Abubakar in Nigeria is also concerned. To say the truth, I don't see any difference between Akmar's administration and Ayatu in the past, says Marvelous. The only difference is the extension to 24 teams at the AFCON finals. When Akmad came on board, we had high hopes, but it's a pity today that we are still battling the same disease, which is corruption. And with all these concerned comments this week, Steve, let's end on a positive note from Malik E. Bojang in the Gambia. The positive that I can take, says Malik, is the expansion of the Nations Cup from 16 to 24. That certainly gives more chances for nations like the Gambia to qualify for the first time. Yeah, that certainly is one of the highlights of an otherwise somewhat controversial three years in charge for Ahmad as the CAF president. Thanks, Ash. That's my colleague Ash Tikiwa. And next here on Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport, to our European football expert Stuart Weir in the UK. And uh, so sad to hear of the death of Senegal legend Papa Buba Job, reportedly of motor neurone disease. Uh, Job was nicknamed the wardrobe because of his imposing stature and one of Senegal's 2002 World Cup heroes. Very sad indeed, and he was only 42. He played in England for 10 seasons, 2004-13. He played 76 games for Fulham, scoring eight goals, but also played for Portsmouth, West Ham and Birmingham City, as well as playing in France, Switzerland and Greece. He was part of the Portsmouth team, which won the FA Cup in 2008 under manager Harry Redknapp, who gave this tribute to his former player. He was a wonderful character. He was fantastic for us, always happy, always with a smile on his face, a giant of a man. Of course, he will mainly be remembered for scoring Senegal's goal against France in the 2002 World Cup when Senegal beat the World Cup holders. FIFA posted a tribute on social media which read, Once a World Cup hero, always a World Cup hero. And Fulham played on Monday evening, and when Adamola Lukman scored their goal against Leicester City, he celebrated by holding up a Senegal shirt which had been hung in the Fulham dressing room in a tribute to their former player. Yes, and that was the number 19 shirt uh, being displayed, the number that Jop wore for the Taranga Lions. And Lookman, the Fulham scorer, uh, wears the number 19 jersey himself for Fulham by coincidence. Right then, this weekend's big one in the English Premier League, Stuart. It's the leaders Tottenham taking on Arsenal on Sunday. Well, Tottenham are still top of the league as I speak, but they may not be by the time they play Arsenal on Sunday. But there could hardly be a better time for Tottenham to be playing their North London rivals, who lost 2-1 at home to Wolves at the weekend. Ironically, that marked the anniversary of Mikel Arteta's appointment 
as head coach at Arsenal. But with Arsenal in 14th place in the league table, Arteta has been responsible for Arsenal's worst ever start in a Premier League season. Now, this week we are seeing spectators back in English football, with up to 4,000 spectators allowed to watch sport, including the Premier League. But it's not entirely straightforward, because it could be as little as a 1,000 in areas where levels of COVID are high. Despite their low standing in the table, Manchester City were impressive, beating Burnley, and Riyad Mahrez scored three goals for Manchester City in that 5-0 win over Burnley. And incredibly, that's the fourth time in just two years that Manchester City have beaten Burnley by the score of 5-0. And incidentally, Steve, this is the seventh time this season that a Premier League player has scored three goals in a match. And in the whole of last season, there were only 11 hat-tricks, but seven in the first quarter of the season. One of the reasons that Tottenham remained top of the league is that Liverpool dropped two points against Brighton when the Seagulls were awarded a last-minute penalty. Already this season, Liverpool have dropped six points from winning positions, and that's in 10 games. And last season, in 38 games, Liverpool only dropped six points in games when they were leading. So what's happening at Liverpool? Jan Betnarek scored last Sunday to give Southampton a 1-0 lead against Manchester United. By halftime, the Saints led 2-0, but went on to lose 3-2. And incredibly, the last time Betnarek gave Southampton a 1-0 lead was against Wolves in January this season. Again, they went two up at halftime and again lost 3-2. But Southampton are having a strange season. They've conceded 16 goals in the league. But 12 of them have come in the second half. So somehow they just can't keep it going. And Manchester United won with a 92nd minute goal. Incredibly, in September 2012, United also beat Southampton 3-2, coming from behind. And Van Persie scored the winning goal, yes, in the 92nd minute. And another fascinating statistic about Manchester United is that this season, in all competitions, they've scored 12 goals after the 85th minute. Remember, they used to score so many late goals that we called it Fergie time. Well, it's happening again. And finally, Steve, the Times newspaper informs me that Edison Cavani is the first Premier League player to come on as a substitute and head two goals. (laughs) <laughs> is that so? And uh, Stuart, a word about Sheffield United. Uh, they did so well last season as a newly promoted club with no big signings and uh, finished ninth. But uh, this time around, they're bottom with one point from ten games. Yes, and last season, of course, United finished ninth in the Premier League. And they lost five of their last nine games after the break in the season. So with a few more wins in those final games, they could have finished as high as fifth. But this season, it's just the opposite. Played 10, lost 9. The problem has been scoring goals. They've only got 4 goals in 10 league games and 2 of those for penalties. So only 2 goals in open play in 10 games. But you know the margins are so small in the Premier League. 7 of their defeats have been by a single goal. And just let's look at their last 2 games. Against West Ham, Sheffield United lost 1-0 but hit the bar. Then they lost 1-0 to West Brom when their manager Chris Wilder commented that they'd done enough to win the game, but had simply not taken their chances to score goals. That West Brom and Fulham both won last weekend leaves Sheffield United four points adrift and the only team in the Premier League without a win. 
Last season, newly promoted Sheffield United were frankly a breath of fresh air in the Premier League. They have the smallest squad, the lowest wage bill, but they were winning games. And they have one Norwegian player, but apart from that, every player they've used this season is from the British Isles. You know, they may be suffering from what is sometimes called second season syndrome. That is, when you come into the Premier League, you're a surprise package. Other Premier League clubs don't quite know how you're going to play, but by the second season, they've worked you out. Again, they made no significant signings other than goalkeeper Aaron Ramsdale to replace the outstanding Dean Henderson, who had been on loan from Manchester United. An alternative, more brutal explanation is that last season, Sheffield United punched above their weight, and despite having an outstanding manager in Chris Wilder, they simply don't have the quality for the Premier League. I mean, even last season, finishing ninth, they only scored 39 goals, a goal a game. Steve, the top of the championship looks interesting with the three relegated clubs from last season, Norwich City, Bournemouth and Watford, in the top three places. And the last time that the relegated clubs were promoted immediately was 1903. One of the biggest changes we've seen this season is referees going to check the pit side monitor. Up to last week, it had happened 25 times and the referee changed his decision on 24 of them. Yes, so if the referee looks at the pitch side monitor for a penalty, it's likely that the penalty will be given. Thanks, Stuart. Uh, That's it for this week. So from me, Steve Vickers and Ash Tekiwe in Harare, from Ida Waringa in Nairobi and Stuart Weir in the UK, thanks a lot for listening. And Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production.